Well, good morning, Firewheel family. It's always a pleasure to be able to share God's word with you. And as uh, Chris mentioned, if I've not had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Adrian Pina. I also get to serve as one of our teachers here at our uh, Bible studies in the morning. So I get to serve with our great room crew there. So if you're not participating in a Bible study, we'd love for you to be able to come out and check those out. And uh, we're just really excited about what God is doing. And I get really excited, I'll tell you right up front, about the Word of God. How many of y'all get excited about the Word of God? All right. So this morning, if you have your Bible, everybody say word. word. We're going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 9 this morning. And I also want you to put your thumb on Luke chapter 5 because we're actually going to start there and we're going to jump between both of those passages of Scripture uh, throughout the morning, okay? So let's go ahead and we're going to find ourselves in Matthew again chapter 9 and then we're going to find ourselves also in Luke chapter 5. So we are continuing on in our sermon series through the book of Matthew, and I've enjoyed this journey as we have gone along and basically worked verse by verse through the text. Now, where we find ourselves positioned right now at the start of chapter 9 is a very unique place. As Pastor Chris mentioned a few weeks ago that in chapters 8 and 9, we see ten, a series of 10 miracles that take place. And chapter 9 really is kind of right in the middle of that, and I really believe that the passage I'm going to share with you today is absolutely critical, and it's kind of the crest point of what Jesus was doing when he was doing these series of miracles. So last week, just to remind you, we talked to the theology nerd in me last week, just loved what we talked about last week because we talked about demons. It's not as often you hear about talking about demons on a Sunday morning, right? But we got a little demonology and worked through some theology about the supernatural last week, uh, thanks to Pastor Chris. And so if you have not taken an opportunity to be able to listen that, to that, I would encourage you to be able to go back and listen to that. We saw the story of the healing of two demon-possessed men who were set free by the power of Jesus, that Jesus just spoke a word, and they were, those demons were exercised into a herd of pigs, and we saw what that, signif uh, what that signified. And what that really shows to me, and I want to point out to you, and we're going to see this building up today, is that it showed that Jesus has the authority over the demonic. Do you believe that your Savior has the authority over the demonic? A couple weeks ago... We saw where Jesus calmed the sea. Now, I, I just want to see that scene. That's one of those scenes when I get to heaven, I want him to play on Blu-ray for me. I want to see it in 4K, and I want to see what the, the, the disciples' reaction was when he just says, hey, why y'all so worried? Don't be afraid. And then he basically just says, all right, calm sea, and the sea calms. I, I want to see what, what that reaction was. So a couple weeks ago when we saw that, what we really see in Jesus calming in the storm, I want to read to you the description of what the disciples say after he does it. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, it records their reaction, and it says, And the men marveled. Yeah, that's an understatement. The men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Even the winds and the sea obey him. What that tells me is that Jesus has authority over nature. So not only does Jesus have authority over the demonic, we also see that Jesus has authority over nature. Today that theme will continue. At the beginning of chapter 9, we're going to get into a very familiar story that is one of the most incredible stories, I think, of Jesus' earthly ministry. And we are going to see Jesus perform two additional miracles that speak to the realm of authority he still has over two different other areas that he's going to bring to the forefront through, the, through the, what he accomplishes through these miracles. 
So before I get into that, let's go ahead and say a word of prayer, and then we'll jump in. So Lord, we are, we just want to take a moment, and we are opening your word. And we recognize that your word is a living word because it comes from a living God. We recognize that in your word there is power, and that your word never returns void. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take this broken vessel, that the words of my heart, the words of my mouth, and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you. And Lord, I lift up these words to you, and I pray that they would not be mine, but they would be yours. And that Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and give us a heart to receive. In Jesus' name, Amen. So this past Thursday is one of my favorite days on the calendar. This year it actually came a little bit later than usual, but it's one of my favorite days on the calendar. Does anybody know what happened this past Thursday? Any sports fans know what happened this past Thursday? It was baseball's opening day. I love me some baseball. Now, I'm originally from Massachusetts, so uh, being from Massachusetts, you are born and bred a Boston Red Sox fan. I am an avid, avid, avid sports fan, but above all, I'm a Boston Red Sox fan. So as great as the Celtics have been, as great as the Patriots have been, Boston will forever be a baseball town first. And so I love America's pastime. It's, it's like a smell and taste of Americana when we talk about baseball, and it's the sport that I love to play the most. Now here's one thing I want you to take into consideration. When, when a baseball game is going on, there really are three teams on the field. You have the away team, the visiting team, who's coming into the home turf, and they're the enemy, right? And so they come in, and ideally, they are going to be less represented than the rest of the crowd that is there, unless if you have a team that travels well. But they are the enemy. And then you have the home team, the team that everybody's rooting for, the team that we want to see win. It's our home team, the ones that we're rooting for. In my case, it'd be the Boston Red Sox. Even if I was at the Texas Rangers Stadium, I'd be rooting for my Red Sox. I'm sorry. Now, there's a third team on the field, though, that we often do not consider. At every Major League Baseball game, that third team is the team of officials, the team of the umpires. The umpires are definitely not the fastest guys on the field. They're not the youngest guys on the field. They are, by all tents and purposes, they don't have the most physical strength on the field. But one thing unique to the umpires that they wield, that the players on the field do not wield, is they wield authority. The umpires have a certain authority. That authority is given to them by Major League Baseball. So by Major League Baseball, the zebras, as we like to call them, the zebras can make the calls on the field of play. They control the chaos and conflict that happens on the field of play, and what they say goes. If not, there is problems to be had. There'll be, you'll be a little bit lighter in the checkbook. You may actually not be attending some games as you are suspended because they have the authority they have been given because they represent another kingdom. They don't represent the home team. They don't represent the away team. They represent and they have the authority of another kingdom. They are agents of another realm. In like manner, Jesus exercises authority. But he exercises the authority of another realm. He happens to exercise that authority in his incarnation when he's in flesh on the field of play in human history. However, that authority comes from another kingdom because he is from another kingdom. And so when he exercises that authority, what he says goes. When he speaks his word, demons flee. When he speaks his word, seas calm. When he speaks his word, people are healed. He speaks 
with authority of another kingdom. He enacts it on the field of human history. But not only does Jesus display his authority through his words, but he also displays it through his actions, which show that he has complete and total authority over the natural and the supernatural. Both the natural world and the things unseen, Jesus has complete and total authority. If you walk away with one thing I say today, here's this simple thing I want you to walk away with. Jesus has all authority. Do you believe that the Christ that you serve has all authority? Scripture even says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's the authority by which every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is God. He has all authority. So as we open the text this morning, again, we're going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 9, but we're going to start in Luke chapter 5, because Luke chapter 5 actually gives us a little bit more context about what's going on in this very familiar story. So Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 17, we read the following. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers, this is interesting, because as Jesus was going from town to town and performing miracles, his name was getting known, and crowds were following him. We've talked all about this, how the crowds were following him. Now all of a sudden, he's really getting the air and the attention of the Pharisees and scribes. We start seeing them really come onto the scene, and they are going to be a key component in the story today. So here are these Pharisees and teachers. Of the law, they were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal, with Jesus. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and led him down through, with his bed, through the tiles into the mist before Jesus. Incredible. These guys are like, I'm getting my friend to Jesus. And so they couldn't work through the crowd, so they get really crafty and they break a hole in the ceiling. <laughs> and they lower him down so that he's in front of Jesus. Now Matthew's account tells us another little detail. It tells us that Jesus crosses over on a boat, and he crosses over on a boat to Capernaum where this is actually taking place. And Capernaum really is kind of like the earthly, it's kind of like his center hub for his ministry here on earth. And so now he goes into his own city, it says, and he goes into Capernaum on this boat, very, very closely tied to what I just told you about, about the demoniac that he healed and when he calmed the sea. This is all subsequently happening very quickly. So here's the first thing I want you to see. Jesus is going to show us in this, this story that he has authority in another realm. And he tells us that he has the authority to forgive sin. He has the authority to forgive sin. Look at verse 2, Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed. And listen to this. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. There's a few things to know about this actual, what we just read, that I want to highlight for you. Number one is you notice that Jesus says that he saw their faith, plural. Most of the times when I've heard this story preached before, or if I've actually myself have come to, at times read this story this way, we focus on what the, the friends did. We focus on the fact that, oh my God, they did something incredible. They're showing their faith. They broke a hole into the ceiling. They're dropping this guy in front of Jesus. But Jesus, I think, is also referring to the faith of the paralytic. The paralytic also had faith. He believed. And I think we get a key indicator of that later on in the story. 
But it's not just the, the faith of the friends, but also the paralytic. And the question then really arises to me, well then how does one know and see faith? Jesus says, I saw your faith. So that question is, how does someone know and see faith? Well, number one, faith is something that's active. We see faith through what it produces. Faith is always a verb. It's something that is moving. It's something that is not static. It involves action. And so based upon the action of these individuals, based upon the faith that he's looking at internally of the paralytic, he sees that they are moving toward Jesus. They are showing their action. They're putting their cards on the table. They're putting their eggs in the Jesus basket, and they are moving toward him in faith. And Jesus acknowledges that much in the same way he acknowledges the woman with the issue of blood who finds herself doing what she needs to do to get to Jesus. And in the same way, these friends are like, I'm getting my friend to Jesus. And this paralytic's like, I believe that he can do something for me. Here's an ancillary, but I think important point of this story, is that if you see the action of the friends, it really tells me something that I really want you to hear today, is it tells me the importance of having community with those who have faith like you. The reason why is because there are some times when you can piggyback on the faith of others. Let me say that again. There's some times when you can piggyback on the faith of others. I've been a Christian a long time. My faith is not always where it needs to be. I'm not always on the mountaintop. I have valleys too. Anybody else have valleys? Anybody else have times when your faith struggles? Well, that's really a convenient time when as we're doing right now here is the body of Christ, when people can come alongside of you together and pray with you and love on you and say, you know what, I know your faith is struggling right now, but let me carry you to the Savior. Let me carry you to Jesus. So that way we can actually be together and do that together. That's what I see when I see what these friends did for this paralytic man. Jesus speaks with such compassion. He says, take courage. And he says, my son. Another way we could translate that is literally my child. And I can imagine Jesus getting to his level and just saying, my child, I see you. I see you. I see your suffering. He didn't say, oh, wow, I'm so inconvenienced. You see all these other people out here. Why are you airdropping this guy in front of me? But no, he says, take courage. And he says, my child, my son. That tells me that this guy had faith. He calls him his son. But then he says something astounding. And I'm sure that it was astounding to all the people who heard it. And it's astounding to me when I read the story. He says, your sins are forgiven. Why? That's a little unique if you think about it, right? The guy's paralyzed. But your sins are forgiven. He has a point in what he's doing. He has a point in what he's doing. Because Jesus doesn't lead with the physical healing, but he leads with the spiritual reality first. Let me ask you a question. How is a person forgiven by God of their sins? Y'all can interact with me. How is a person forgiven by God of their sins? Through faith. Faith is exactly the way we come to God with our sin. We believe that he died upon the cross, that he was buried, he rose again, and that's how we are forgiven of our sins. Faith is what we do, what we express. So what this story shows me is that your and my ultimate need is not a physical one, it's a spiritual one. Jesus prioritizes the spiritual before he addresses the physical. Because what does it matter if you have a fully functioning body and a soul that is still separated from God? 
What does it matter if my heart is still very far and sin has so inflicted my life and the sin problem, which is an eternal problem, hasn't been dealt with when we're dealing with a temporal problem of a physical reality. He looks to the spiritual first. And if you think about it, all of our needs, even physically speaking, link back to sin. Let me go ahead and show you this for a moment. Imagine you wake up today, you, uh, you go home today and you have a headache. So you have a headache, your natural inclination may be, you know what, I want to relieve this headache, so I'm going to go ahead and pop some Tylenol, some Advil, whatever painkiller you like. So you go, you pop four or five of those or some Aleve, and you're trying to relieve the symptom of this headache. And this headache is just, it's a really bad migraine, and it's just really, really bothering you. Now, if you have that headache for a few days, and it doesn't go away, no matter how many pills you pop, then what are you likely to do at that point? Hopefully you'll go see a doctor because there's probably something else that is underlying the situation that it just so happens that a headache is manifesting itself in this way. So you go see the doctor. The doctor tells you, you know what? I really believe we have a different underlying issue. We need to go ahead and get a CAT scan. So the doctor prescribes you and gets you a CAT scan. You get the CAT scan done. The results come back. And all of a sudden the CAT scan clearly shows that you have a brain tumor. So if you have a brain tumor, that is really the underlying problem, correct? It shows itself as a symptom of a headache, but would you rather deal with the headache or would you rather deal with the brain tumor? I'd much rather exercise the brain tumor because it will deal with the headache then if I get down to the root problem. Here's the reality, is we live in a sin-soaked world. We live in a broken and fallen world. Can I get an amen to that? Everybody believes that, right? And the realities of sin, and when sin came on the scene, the very first thing in Genesis 3, one of the, the bits of the curse is that death is coming. We all die. Our bodies are physically decaying. We are subject now to our bodies wasting away. So sin is that reality. Sin is what makes us die physically. So we could trace it even back to that. I'm not saying that the man's sickness is a result of his sin. As a matter of fact, there are other times when Jesus performs miracles of healing people and people ask questions, what did his father do? What did he do? Because they were attributing that, okay, he's sick, it must be because he sinned. That's not the point. The point is, is that Jesus is looking at the underlying surface and he's seeing that the spiritual reality needs to be addressed before the physical. Every single person has a spiritual healing need that only Jesus can bring which washes away your sin. Let me say that again. Every person needs a spiritual healing that only Jesus can bring which washes away your sin, my sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? So Jesus declares, he makes a declaration here, he says, your sins are forgiven. That's a pretty bold statement to be able to make. And immediately, here's where the scribes and Pharisees are important to this story, because they actually make the right connection. They recognize the significance of what Jesus was saying. They say that he's blaspheming. They basically say that he's being non-respectful toward God. That's what it means to blaspheme. They're saying that, who's this guy? thinking that he can make this claim to be able to forgive sins. Luke 5.21 brings this into more detail. Luke 5.21 says this, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemes? Who can, who can forgive sins but God alone? Please catch this. This story is not about a paralytic man getting healed. This story really is about what Jesus is declaring about himself. Okay? 
So they make the right connection. The scribes and the Pharisees make the right assessment. Who is this man? Or who is this, I'm inserting the word man, but basically they're saying is, who is this chump? Who's this guy who thinks that he can say and forgive sins? They are making the right assessment if Jesus was just a man. Then they'd be making the right assessment. They come to the right conclusion. Who can forgive sins but God? Would we all agree? I'd agree with the Pharisees and scribes on that one. Amen, brother. I can testify to that. Only God can forgive sins. The problem is, is they didn't realize God was right in front of them. They thought it was a man in front of them. You can make that assessment and statement if you believe there's a man standing in front of you. But if you believe the Son of God, Jesus himself, as God, is standing before you, then he has absolute authority to be able to say, I forgive your sin. But if you don't believe that he's God, then you can make such a claim. By Jesus making this statement and the reason why they accuse him of blasphemy, Jesus is publicly declaring, I am God. I am God, because only God can forgive sin. Look at verse 5. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, that your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Really interesting question. He's like, I understand where you're going with your line of questioning. He's looking and sees the intent of their heart, another proof that he's God, by the way. And so he sees the intent and desires of their heart, and then he throws out this rhetorical question, and I throw it out to you as well. Which is easier, to say that your sins are forgiven or to rise up and walk? What's easier? To say your sins are forgiven. The reason why that's easier is because you don't have to have empirical proof. I can walk around, I can say your sins are forgiven. You really, you could maybe accuse me of blaspheming, but you couldn't say that that wasn't true per se because you can't see that reality. Now, if I tell somebody, rise up and walk, and they don't walk, guess what? Somebody's going to be looking at you and say, you got no authority. So Jesus perceives exactly what they are saying. It's kind of obvious. But here's the second reality that Jesus shows us in this passage. He shows us he has the authority to heal. Look at verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of God... Listen to the way that he describes it. He says himself that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, these two are connected, intricately connected, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And when he rose and went home, then he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority. There's that word again. To men. I love what Jesus is doing here because he's showing there's a purpose behind his actions. He's showing that I can say, as saying of Jesus, that he could say that your sins are forgiven and that can't be proven in that way. But he said, just to make the point, to show you that I have the authority to do that, I'm going to do the thing that you think I can't do. Rise up and walk. And by saying rise up and walk, he's saying, you saw what I just did? That validates the first thing I just said. By showing you that I can exercise and be able to exhibit my authority over the physical and make this lame man be able to walk, I'm showing you I have authority over the spiritual, that I am able to make this declaration and fulfill it because I am God. I can tell you that I can forgive sins. 
just as I can heal bodies. Because I made them. Because I made them. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, only God can control nature. Only God can exercise the demonic. Only God can forgive sins. And only God can heal broken bodies. And Jesus does it for the point of saying and showing, I am he. We know that Jesus is God, not only through the things in which he did, but we know because there are a number of other different evidences. By the way, we're going to celebrate one next week. It's the greatest one. Last time I checked, nobody else raises from the grave except God. Unless God is involved. But we also know that Jesus is God because he declared it of himself a number of times throughout the Gospels. He told the scribes and the Pharisees in John, I believe it was 8, when they are addressing him, he says that before Abraham was, I am. And what did they want to do? They wanted to stone him because they knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, I existed before Abraham was. I am is exactly the picture of Exodus chapter 3 when God pre presents himself to Moses in the burning bush. And he says, I am who I am. Jesus is saying, that I am who I am, that's me. And they wanted to kill him. They wanted to stone him. Accused him of blaspheming. But only God can do these things. This very familiar story is not about a man's healing. The man gets to be a testimony of what Jesus is trying to communicate. This is a story very clearly indicating that Jesus Christ is God. That Jesus Christ is God. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is the greatest question that humankind has been wrestling with throughout all of history ever since the incarnation. You even have in the Bible times when people describe him, even after doing miracles, they say, oh, some say he's a prophet. Some say he's a good teacher. Some say all these other things about Jesus, and this is still the question that is at the forefront of humanity today as we wrestle with, who is Jesus? It is a question that you have to answer for yourself. Is he just a man or is he God? Is he just a good teacher who teaches us good morals and principles, or is he the savior of the world? Who is Jesus? Interestingly enough, this has been the center of all the controversy of the church from its very inception. You can trace every theological heresy back to Christology. The early church from its very inception was dealing with this reality of who Jesus was and articulating and wrestling with how do we communicate who Jesus is to really show and validate that he is God. They've answered this from the very beginning. And before summarizing for you and closing today, I want to read to you a statement from way back when. Some of you may have heard of the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed, the second section of it, deals with all about Jesus. And it was in response to a heresy. It was in response to a heresy called Arianism that asserted that Jesus was not divine. This heresy that was going around asserted that Jesus was just a created being. He was the highest of created beings. He was God's first created being, but he was a created being and he was not divine. He wasn't God. So the church rallied around and this is what the church said way back in the fourth century. And these words still echo for us today. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all words, worlds. Listen to this statement. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Speaks to his divine nature. There is no question. He is a member of the Trinity. He's got the God stuff. Begotten and not made. Being of one substance with the Father or one nature with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, and he was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. That is your Jesus. That is your Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus wasn't just some good man. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't the firstborn of creation, that he was some created being. He wasn't some emanation. He wasn't adopted as the Son of God. All of these are very uh, clear heresies throughout church history. I just articulated to you. No, the one thing that we could declare about him is that he is the God over all nature. One thing we could declare about him is that he is the God over the demonic. He is the God over the supernatural and the natural. That he is the only one fit to be the Savior, and that if he isn't all of these things, then Easter has no meaning next week, because he's God. <laughs> Jesus is and has always been God. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and I am the last. Jesus is God. And he's God who exercises the authority of another kingdom. And he exercised that in his incarnation on the field of play in human history. And even in human history today, he is still exercising that authority to be able to forgive sins if you just place your faith and believe in him. And one day we will stand face to face with him. Our, face will, our faith will become sight when we behold the beauty of our Savior, the one and only God of God. Light of light, very God of very God. Let me summarize this for you and then give you, leave you with two quick questions. My one true statement or one big idea for today is that Jesus has all authority. This passage has been building. We've seen these series of miracles and now it capstones with this reality as Jesus makes such a bold declaration of saying that he's able to forgive sins, something that only God can do. Because he's proving the fact that he is God. So he has the authority to forgive sins, but he also has the authority to heal. And he shows that by those two together that he is declaring and he's, he's proclaiming to his audience that he is God. So I leave you with two questions today. Number one is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I believe he's God as well. Do you? I hope so. This is a question that you have to answer for yourself. And some of you may have walked into this place today and you may be skeptical about Jesus. That's okay. I'm happy that you're in this place and that you get to hear and I'd love to talk to you. And I know Pastor Chris, we'd love to talk to you more about him and introduce you to the Savior that we have come to know and, lo know and love. But we all have to wrestle with this question, who is Jesus? And that also Jesus has all, all authority, not over just all of creation, but over our lives as well. So I want you to think this week, what does it mean for Jesus to have authority over my life? 
Are there areas of your life you have not granted the king access to? Is there areas where you're saying, okay, Jesus, I'll keep you on the periphery right here, but this area of my life, you know, I'm going to keep my authority and I'm going to keep the power right here. If Jesus is king, if he is God, and he has all this authority, he has authority over all of our lives as well. So what does it mean for you and I not only to recognize that authority, to yield to it and be able to walk in it every single day? That's what we need to do. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we entered into your word today, we clearly see through your actions, Jesus, that you are proclaiming that you are God. Most boldly putting it out there, showing that you have the ability not only to forgive sins, but to heal broken bodies. And I thank you that you are still healing in both of those ways even today. Because you have the authority. The authority of another kingdom. And that kingdom invades earth. And Lord, I think about your prayer that you model for us. And you even say, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we ask for heaven to invade earth. And for the reality of your authority to be exercised over the ability to forgive sins, to be able to heal broken bodies. And so Lord, for those under the sound of my voice today who may not know you, may have not placed their faith and trust in you today. I pray that they will see that you have all authority and that they may embrace the authority that you have to forgive their sins, that they would recognize that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and that they would cry out to you today and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I recognize that you have the authority to forgive my sins. I believe that you died upon the cross and that you were buried and you rose again. Make me a new creation today. Thank you that I could be part of your kingdom. So, Lord, we love you and honor you as God. Jesus, the most beautiful and holy one. May we live our lives for you and always declare that with the boldness and the strength of the Spirit and all of God's people said, amen. Hey, Pastor Adrian, can we show our appreciation? I love this guy. As, as he was teaching this morning, a couple of thoughts came to mind. Um, the first was, uh, wow, like look what God has done in this man's life. And uh, so privileged and honored uh, to, to have a man like Adrian in my life. And the second thought was, I, I could have used some more teaching from him this morning. Like I was like, hey, no hurry. Let's just keep going. You know, I want more. Uh, but then I realized that uh, that's why we keep coming, is because we're getting sound biblical teaching every single week. Amen? Yeah. All right, family, let's stand together where it's time to go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all till we meet again, same time, same place next week. And do not forget, family, you are loved. Now, let's lavish love on one another, and let's go absolutely rock the local streets with the love of Jesus. What's that? Oh, Friday night. We will see you. That's right. Friday, 6 o'clock. Now let's go rock the streets with Jesus. See you all on Friday.